0: What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Khanna. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here, with the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Whereas the long ad read, you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Emulsion Podcast. My guest today is Julene Perry. She is a food critic previously of Seattle Magazine, a freelance creative and entrepreneur with projects that we definitely discuss in the interview. She's a wonderful host through other fun chef-related events that we all Also, talk about in the interview. She's the author of this book, actually, for those of you video folks. This is called Seattle Cooks, where she highlights basically chefs here in the city, tells their stories, and also includes original recipes written just for this book. And speaking of recipes, I had a hand in testing some of these recipes. I got a nice little shout-out in the back of this book. Julian and I have some other projects in the pipeline together, but I'm very excited for you to hear our conversation. She was immensely transparent and really helped give some insight from her experience in how to be a risk-taking creative, even if you aren't always. Is, quote unquote qualified for the job. I will let her explain. Please enjoy my conversation with Julene Perry. Yeah, first impressions. How is it?
1: I'm gonna need your recipe for coffee. Really? <laughs> so good. So I have a French press at home. I love coffee and I love a good cup of coffee in the morning, but I feel like the only time coffee ever really tastes good to me is when someone else makes it for me. I don't I don't know what the deal is. My maybe my grind is off or my French press sucks.
0: Is it your expectations going into it? that Well, like, you know what to expect with your own coffee, yeah. but then this is going to be totally something you've never had before.
1: Yeah, this is amazing. Okay,
0: good. I mean, I don't know. Again, coffee snobs, whatever my girlfriend's dad calls us, that's what we are. But I don't know how to recreate this.
1: I'm just going to, maybe it's the equipment you use. M- maybe. I like that whole process.
0: Yeah, Aeropressed Ethiopian Guji from Stumptown. Can't really go wrong.
1: Now, do you grind your own beans, or do you have them? Grinded? I do.
0: I do, and it's not very consistent. And anybody that's like a coffee snob would probably be angry with me because you're supposed to use a mechanical grinder, which means the force of it, <coughs> the force of the two things coming together, is what crushes the beans. <coughs> yeah. And I use a mechanical one, which is like a blender. So then it's the impact. Of the blade going around actually crushes the beans, which is supposed to, supposedly not supposed to be that great. Yeah, but I don't know. Like, it's one of those things where um, I don't know. It, maybe there's like some analogy to winemaking where it's like if you start with great grapes, there's probably like if you fuck up a couple things along the way, it's, the wine's probably still gonna be okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah, if you start with if you, I don't know, there's something along along those lines that that at least is my mentality of it because it's like. I have had it where I somebody posted the other day where it's like they really like um, intentionally grinding their coffee less coarse because then it makes it less intense and it's almost like a coffee tea. Yeah, maybe that's something to try. Huh. But I don't know. Um, Aeropresses are cheap; it's like thirty bucks. Um, I'll one. teach you. I'll okay, teach you. Please yeah, do. It's great, Thank and you. you don't have to put soy milk and stevia. No, in not at all. Zero. Please make a little video on yeah, how yeah, to yeah, make yeah coffee yeah. in okay, the Okay, that's a good so idea. I watch it. Because I pl- I'm going on the road a bunch uh, next month, and I plan on bringing that with me. I love because it. Because I don't want uh, gas station coffee. <laughs> 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 Sad. Jalene Perry, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. I am going to throw you a kind of a curveball because you said I could. I'm so excited. <laughs> and in our last email exchange, you said that I couldn't ask you the cliche, where should I go out to eat question. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you that. But I wanted to know, why is it so frustrating to get that question? Is it the expectation that we go out to eat a lot and we know exactly what's going on? But because for me, I go to the same five or eight places that I've loved and that I go to the same time.
1: Yeah. That's like asking somebody who doesn't know you, what kind of wine should I buy for myself? I have sure. no idea what you like. I can, the kind of places that I like to go isn't necessarily the places that have the most amazing food in Seattle. They're places that I just love being in for a couple of hours, or I know the chef, or I. it just feels like my neighborhood restaurant. That's not gonna translate to someone that I don't know very well. So if someone was more specific, like who's got really great pasta? I'm in the mood for like amazing, like, I don't know seafood. Like, where do you recommend? And then I can maybe throw a couple of places at. But this idea of like half the time when people I don't know very well ask me where I should go, I find like the Eater 38, and I'm like, here you go. Uh Here's a good starting place. That way you can read all the descriptions of 38 of Seattle's best restaurants and just pick one that speaks to you. I don't know.
0: It's an more even playing field and. That, that's a testament to the question that I'll get a lot is like, what do I make for dinner? And it's a horrible, horrible, <laughs> horrible question. And it's hard because that's what they expect. That's the expectation is that like yeah. you should be eating out a lot at a lot of these places. And you said something in that email also about not being up to date on the trends.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I got asked that several times during the promotion for this cookbook I just wrote. Mm-hmm. Like, And I think that's just the go-to question for media people. Well, what are some of the trends you're seeing? It's like... I don't know. I don't go out to eat half as much as I used to because I just got really burnt out on that and I went broke. So, (laughs) um, I mean, I can kind of riff on what I think the trends are, which is, you know, I mean, the, the trends that I see, I don't know if other people are going to see the same trends, but it's the things that I see consistently when I go out to the restaurants that I eat at, you know what I mean? So I don't, this sort of like coming to me for this ultimate uh, b-
0: Compendium, yeah On, uh-huh.
1: on the trend, I just, there's so much pressure on my shoulders when I get that Because mm-hmm. half the time I'm not even sure I know what I'm talking about I'm trying to sound like an expert, but I'm not an expert <laughs> I don't want people to be like, oh, well, I thought you were an expert I'm, uh-huh. not gonna, I'm not an expert
0: Well, because also like, that's such a shitty feeling If you give someone a recommendation that doesn't there's they're not happy. Yeah, they're not happy because it's like <laughs> no. I have two days in Seattle. What do I do? It's like I'm so sorry. Yeah, or
1: the other ones are like, where should I go eat in Portland? Uh huh. Uh Again, why don't you go to Eater Portland and pull up? I mean, that's gonna lead because that's what, gonna right? Right, <laughs> like, that's what I'm gonna do anyways. Right, right. That's what I'm gonna do because
0: I'm about to jump on Google and Google what Eater has to say about <laughs> yeah. Portland. Let
1: me do your homework.
0: Totally, for you. totally. I have a plan in 2019 and I'm going to do this with my friend Connor who runs find me in Seattle is an Instagram account. And so I have a plan with him to do a where to eat in Seattle in 2019 thing. But I want to do it through the lens of taking basically a bunch of my homies out to eat and being like, this is where I like to go kind of thing.
1: I feel like a great business would be some sort of, Restaurant concierge Where Uh people pay you some money And you kind of figure out what they like to do And you draft up sort of their plan For the night Here's what I recommend you go for drinks before dinner Here's a great dinner spot You know what I mean? Because then it's kind of like a travel agent Where you get to know these people As opposed to just these like Just throwing random recommendations out And people can start paying you for your time Uh uh Uh-huh,
0: (laughs) uh-huh I have an idea where I want to do an article called and this is for somebody else, but it's an article where I basically talk about the fact that when I go somewhere, I plan the restaurant reservations first, and then I plan this, the rest of the trip around that. So it's like, if I'm going to be in this area of LA, what else is there to do around this right. area? So it'd be cool if you could like generate like half-day plans for somebody. Like, if you're going to come here to this neighborhood at noon, here's a site to see, here's a place to go for a snack, totally. coffee, drinks, dinner, boom.
1: Yeah, it's great because, you know... Good restaurants are usually in pretty great, interesting totally, neighborhoods. Totally. Or not. Or, or not. or yeah,
0: like totally like eclectic, I've never seen this before kind of spaces. Yeah, it's
1: a reason to get you out.
0: Totally. Okay. That was a that was a question I just wanted to ask from our last exchange. First actual question. I want kind of like a state of the union. From you as far as your specific Industry as you have a very Fascinating and expansive career You've done a bunch of different projects in the past So when it comes to food writing or Publishing or working with chefs what's got You excited in early 2019 what are you Obsessed with
1: um, <clears throat> I would Say I like supporting The industry I would say people when they Try and pigeonhole me as a food writer Yep or a food critic. It's like, "Well, I've definitely done that, but my wheelhouse is definitely the industry." Yep. Like I'm pretty tight with a lot of of the people in the industry, not so much the food. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a food expert. Good god, I'm yep. not a food expert. So <laughs> I like working with people in the industry. You know, I like this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. I like collaborating. Yep. I like doing that kind of thing. I have a side business called Chefodex where I basically just hook people up with chefs who are trying to find food for a party or a big event. And that's really fun for me. Mm -hmm. Like I like doing that because I have those connections and that's easy for me. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to do more of that and maybe start some sort of publication that doesn't exist yet. Got it. You know, I kind of like creating fun things. It's not just food writing or recipes, but just getting people excited about, eating and and different things that are happening and
0: so more of a conduit than the actual like one one way or the other because you're not because I feel like if in order to come from that critics perspective you kind of have to be like the benchmark for a guest at a restaurant you have to be very opinionated you have to have great taste you have to have like whatever and then I I feel like a lot of critics take pride in the fact that they don't know how to cook Because then they have a better reference point for the people who are reading their stuff. Yeah. But you're also not like, well, I'm a service provider wine pouring person.
1: Yeah. People like categorizing you as Uh a wine Mm -hmm. or a food person. Totally. One or the other. Yeah. But there's a lot of aspects to both of those. Um, Yeah. I don't know.
0: I had a question I was going to ask later, but you brought it up. So I was going to ask, how do I get on Chefodex?
1: Oh, just tell me you want to be on Chef <laughs> That's great. I already know that you are depend- dependability. Yep. I don't ever recommend somebody I don't know mm. or who has questionable culinary skills. Yeah. But more importantly, I need someone who's going to show up because my biggest fear, and this has not happened in the three years that I have been doing this. Sure. Nobody's no-showed, uh-huh. but that is my biggest fear because Absolutely. chefs are basically contractors. Mm-hmm. They're not employees. So. Even in the contract, it's sort of like, well, I can't be responsible for this chef. If they don't show up or they do something weird at your party, Like, I can't be held responsible. Because you're not there. I'm not there. And also, they're not my employee. These Mm -hmm. are all contractors. These are chefs who work at reputable restaurants already. And the hope is that they are professional. Uh But it's hard because, you know, you book a chef and then you just cross your fingers that everything is going to work out and they're going to show up. But heaven forbid that day comes and you get that last minute call of like, I'm sorry, I know I booked this dinner for 50 people, but I just can't make it.
0: Because then what do <laughs> you do? Then <laughs> yeah. Then uh, what do you do?
1: Great. All right. Well, Dear don't, God. Cash, don't cash your check. I'm
0: really going <laughs> to knock on wood that that never happens because that's also terrifying. I don't know, dude. Like even if even if I'm the chef at that event, anything going wrong is like. Yeah. Such a because it's it's you have one shot
1: and you are letting. I think that biggest thing is like you're disappointing somebody mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're unless they've worked with you before, they're never going to hire you again. Totally. Like that's it. Totally that's frightening to me
0: ay 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 um the follow up that i had on the Chefadex is i've been seeing a lot of people doing this kind of um model where it's like you're connecting a chef with a guest and it because it provides a lot of value to connect people to chefs and events and how do you how do you go about finding these opportunities and how like what 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 is i, I hate to pitch it as the cliche question of what makes Chefodex different, but I think, I haven't seen it yet in Seattle, but uh, kind of, where's your head at with,
1: with Yeah, like, well, basically the idea is, right after I left Seattle Magazine, I mean, I have all these contacts, and I have all these cell phone numbers, and it's just like, and I know everyone's schedule, and who recently left their job, and who's looking for work, and who's available, like, I just kind of already know that in my head. So it's easy for me when you want to book somebody for a party, I can just reach out to that person right now. Directly. Directly. (laughs) And I'm not talking like catering companies. Mm -hmm. I'm talking like a sought after chef who probably doesn't even know how to price themselves because they don't really do these events. Mm -hmm. So I have, it's just direct, you're paying for access, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think people want access to things that your average Joe doesn't have mm-hmm. access to.
0: So do you then handle the payment from the client, you pay the chef at whatever yeah. rate they decide? I'm
1: literally like the agent. Totally. I'm just the in-between.
0: Love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. And
1: that whatever the chef quotes, like they get all that money. It's not like I take a percentage Tight. of their pay. Tight. So, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's
0: got to be incredibly fulfilling for you. It
1: is, but I haven't marketed. It's, it's been limping along with zero marketing. Mm-hmm. We have really good SEO. Yeah. So I do get... A lot of requests and ultimately I just need to focus on that more maybe bring in another business partner mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just really give it a go totally. because I think that, that values it has there. legs mm-hmm. and people want that and remember when like there used to be this big personal chef business in mm-hmm. Seattle like four season chef where people could actually find private chefs you know um, and that doesn't even exist anymore. So I think people don't really know where to turn when they're like, well, I don't want to go to Costco and pick up party platters. I don't want to hire a catering company. Like, I actually want a chef to come and cook in my kitchen and serve us. Like, how does that, is that even a service? How that people- does that work? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And I think people are surprised. Like, I didn't even know that this was an option.
0: My biggest mind blowing thing when I moved here was the amount of multi million dollar homes that have incredible kitchens in them. And as someone who's worked in fine dining, that's kind of like the market that I'm going for is the people with disposable income. So Mm -hmm. I look at it as like a direct-to-consumer kind of thing where it's like you don't have to come to my restaurant, which is located in, I don't know, Ballard, and you have to make a reservation or something. I'll come to you, cook in your kitchen. You can have all your friends over, and it's probably going to be a little bit cheaper than you because you'll probably buy wine at cost. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: and wouldn't you agree that most... People who have that kind of disposable income don't go out very often.
0: Not even close. <laughs> they yeah. they want it's this. the last thing they want to do.
1: Right. It's like I just want to stay home and have somebody cook for me. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. not going out to like the hottest new restaurant. Totally. Yeah.
0: It's funny. Maybe they need to be well, yeah, they, they they also probably can't give you the answer of where where where, <laughs> where you should go out to eat. Um can you so so you mentioned Seattle Mag, you mentioned Chefidex. Can you give a little bit more about your background story till now? Is how, or the journey till now is how I like to oh kind of like draw, draw that timeline. It's
1: going to sound like I am a member of like a traveling carnival. <laughs> I went to school for broadcast journalism. Mm-hmm. So I do have that going for me. Yep. I did actually get some training. This is a
0: comfortable environment. <laughs>
1: um, and I don't know why I majored in that. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I started college when I was 17 and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be in music, but I ended up in communications because that just seems easier than uh, like, I think I was an early on business major and I'm uh-huh. like, this definitely is not for me.
0: Was so, food a part of your life at that point?
1: Not at all. Although I do remember I was in college, so this was the 90s and I had a copy of it wasn't, it might've been Seattle's best places, but it was something else. And I remember one of the first restaurants. So a girlfriend and I, um, she was super into not even food, but just like, you know, we were in Seattle for the first time in our lives as like quote unquote adults, you know, we got to get in our cars and go to places. So we would just find these little cafes and stuff. And I remember reading about the high spot cafe and I just thought, Oh, my goodness. And I kind of found Madrona through that, right? What you were saying earlier. Yep. It's like It was almost like a travel guide because uh-huh. we were reading all these descriptions of restaurants and we had no idea where they were. So we would just get in our car and drive and find these places. And it was a great way to explore Seattle. But I did get kind of interested in food, not to the extent that I am now. Um, but uh, when I graduated from college... Um, I ended up in broadcast journalism. So I worked for news radio stations like Cairo Radio and Mm -hmm. Como Radio. Um, And I always wanted to have my own coffee shop like that. It was during the whole coffee boom. And I just thought I just fell in love with coffee and specifically cafe culture. Mm -hmm. And so I started an espresso catering business in 2000 which was the easy way to have my own coffee shop. It was very low overhead. My dad gave me some money to buy an espresso cart and an espresso machine. And so I had one mobile unit and I could go places and make people coffee.
0: And you were the one doing... I
1: was the only person doing it. I'm (laughs) like, what did I get myself into? I had like a trailer, a covered trailer, and I was like towing this cart. And I was just like, I can't believe this is my life now. But I do remember when I was working at Cairo Radio, I became... Um, Acquaintances with Tom O'Keefe Who started Tully's Coffee And before I left Cairo I think I was interviewing him When they raised the big green tea On top of the old Rainier Brewery And it was now the Tully's Roasting Plant And I covered that story for Cairo intentionally because I wanted to bend his ear about the fact that I was starting this espresso catering business. And if Tully's ever wants me, and he immediately set me up with an interview with their like marketing department. And like pretty much the next day I was catering all of their um, sponsored events. You know, Tully's was always the coffee sponsor for all of these fundraisers and stuff, the Sheraton and the Weston. And so... My job was to represent Tully's with a coffee cart at the end of the night. People wanted coffee coming out of the auction. So they would supply all the coffee and the syrups, and then they would just kind of pay me for my time. so I took that concept. So I wasn't making a lot of money doing this. I had like a part-time job as an admin assistant at Fred Hutch. So this would have been like the early 2000s. Wowza. It was well into my 20s, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm super old, Um, but... I remember I was bored at work one day and I sent an email to Oren Smith, who was the CEO of Starbucks at the time. Okay. I have no idea how I got his email. It was probably online at the time, yep. but I just sent him a nice little email. Hey, my name's Juline. I do this thing. I do all the carts for Tully's. If you have any interest in letting me do this for Starbucks, I would welcome the opportunity sure. within t- 24 hours easily I got an email or maybe a phone call from the head of business development. Is it business development? No, business, uh, I can't remember the Mm -hmm. words, but it was basically the guy who was in charge of all the Starbucks that aren't actual Starbucks stores, so Business Alliance. Ah, I see. So like the Starbucks at SeaTac or the Starbucks that's in Safeway, Safeway, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he brought me in and I started, he invited me to come to all of their district manager meetings so I could literally, stand up at these meetings, introduce myself, tell all the partners, basically it ended up being in the entire state of Washington, that I had this business where I could provide mobile coffee to anyone and if any of them got a call asking for mobile Starbucks coffee to route that call to me, I was trained at starbucks i actually had a part-time job there back in the 90s so i knew how to make their coffee i would hire their baristas if i needed extra help i would use their product wear their aprons use their syrups everything i would be a starbucks employee basically going to all this it's really hard to get all of those people to remember (laughs) that yeah um so but it did work out well i probably stayed in business as long as i did because i had starbucks totally me that helps so they were routing a lot of business my way and so when i got that call i mean the whole thing was like whether the call came from tully's or starbucks depending on which coffee company i would use their coffee anyway long story short After about five years, I got really burnt out and it was like physically demanding. I At the time I had like four carts and I was pulling all of that stuff out of the back of what became like a large van and it was just like overwhelming and I was only making money from like September through the holidays and then I would be poor from like January (laughs) until like summer and then, you know, like I could not pay my rent. Uh So I'm like, screw it. I really like baking, you know, so I used the money from the sale of my espresso catering business to put myself through the baking and pastry school at the Art Institute. Got it. And in the meantime, I was working at Rovers, which no longer exists, but Mm -hmm. it was like a super well-respected fancy French restaurant in Madison Valley, Terry Rotero. And I was learning so much in the kitchen that I left the Art Institute after six months, it was a full year program where you were just getting such a broad overview of things that they just assumed you were working in a restaurant to learn everything. I they weren't see. teaching it. They didn't have time. Totally. It's like, we spent one day on laminated doughs, maybe two. So they just assumed that you already had a job that was teaching you more detail.
0: Well, it was like, you know what this is <laughs> instead of like, you actually know how to do this.
1: Yeah. I'm like, this is a very expensive school. It's not that fun for me. All these, like, bitches who were taking that class were so competitive it was not there was no camaraderie people were not very friendly I'm like you know what I'm just gonna save myself some money work at a restaurant and call it a day Mm. and so while I was working at rovers you know spending time in the kitchen with all those guys like you hear really interesting stories and so at that time I was also working one day a week at Como Radio because my old boss from Cairo Radio was now the new news director there and he took pity on me because I needed money and so he kind of created this like part-time job for me Um, and then at one point I went to him and said hey can I start like a restaurant feature introduce people to chefs in the city because at the time I'd go into the radio station and I'd tell people that I was working at Rovers and it was just crickets like Mm -hmm. no one had heard of Rovers everyone knew who Tom Douglas and Ivers yeah but nobody knew who anyone else was so I just thought um you know let me create like a weekly radio feature where I just interview chefs in the city and sort of introduce people to these restaurants that they've probably never heard of and that was 2004 and that literally snowballed into everything I think at some point A few years later, I got an email from Jonathan Kaufman, who was the food editor at Seattle Weekly at the time. Um, And he wanted to bring me on as like a gossip call, like a like an industry gossip type of person who would write like three or four posts a week. And so I did that. And then, you know, that just kind of led to everything else. Mm -hmm. And that's that. I mean, honestly. Well,
0: my question was going to be that turning point when you started writing about food Seems to me like it was like this combination of the fact that you through your business You were incredibly well connected with all these people and then you also had this industry experience Did that is that what it kind of felt like like it just felt right because it was fusing these two things together
1: Yeah, it was just kind of I literally remember this has only happened to me A couple of times in my life. Have you ever just been? Sitting or standing, and all of a sudden it feels like somebody opens up your head and puts an idea in yep, there. Yeah. And literally a light bulb went off. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I should totally see if I can turn my experience into a radio program. And I don't, that's just, it just felt super right. Like it made sense at the time. Totally. You know, because there was no food or restaurant feature content on the radio of all places Mm -hmm. so i mean the feature never it was weekly from 2004 to 2010 i mean it never got any sponsorship and i think i made like 50 bucks (laughs) you know i wasn't making any money but um yeah yeah it was fun and that led to you know what i do now basically the other
0: thing that i'm gathering is like through the coffee the mobile coffee business through this weekly feature it's like this thing that it's not that nobody's asking for it. It's just that you see the potential there, and you're willing to hustle for it. Like, where does that come from? Yeah, for you? Uh,
1: I don't know. I
0: have no idea. <laughs> it's like my fearless, my dad courage, is optimistic. The same way.
1: I think we just have we're allergic to working for other people. Okay, so we're constantly trying to figure out how to work for ourselves and do our, I just feel like I have one of those people that has a lot of ideas. It's not that I can't settle on one job. I just have a lot of ideas and Mm -hmm. things I want to accomplish. Totally. So I just saw potential. And that also, that radio feature gave me an excuse to meet a lot of people in the industry who I would not know today had I not done that feature. Because when I was interviewing these people, I had no idea who they were. I was meeting them for the first time. They were telling me their story. And when people do that, when you spend an hour with someone, you have you leave with a relationship so it's stuck
0: the other thing that i noticed in this uh story this journey is you talk about in the beginning having like this intense love for cafe culture yes and then when you talk about um kind of like the restaurants that you like now you just like the atmosphere I of do. being in there yes wh- absolutely. Wh- what sticks out for you with like a cafe or a restaurant I as far as know. like wh- it's a je ne sais quoi kind of thing. Yeah,
1: I feel like you know when you walk in. There mm-hmm. are places where I have walked into and then just immediately pivoted and walked out because Whoa. I'm like, I'm just not feeling the vibe here. Interesting. You know? Do you know how sometimes you can walk into a restaurant uh-huh. and you know that the chef's in a bad mood? Okay. And everyone hates their job. Mm-hmm. There's like an energy. Super cold. <laughs> yes. yes. Or when you walk in and there's no music mm-hmm. or when you walk in and it's quiet. Like, I want to be somewhere where it seems like, I don't know. You know like just like A place that you can imagine yourself Being for a few hours It like has vitality
0: Yeah Or something I feel like a good vibe I feel like that um, also translates to you Liking the Dick's Burgers Right outside your place (laughs) Because that place is always Has a a vitality to it It does It's so funny Um, I wanted to also continue on Because we have a mutual friend In J.J. McKay of the Fresh Toast Yeah and so I kind of wanted to get a sense of where your head's at with where cannabis is as far as like how it is in the media right now and then I have a bunch of chef friends who are getting involved with cannabis cooking yes. with it and, and all that stuff so how maybe how did that come into your life and where's your head at what did, what does it need what does the cannabis industry need yeah
1: well I will say I got hired on as the food editor got it for that publication but it does not exist anymore mm. so now I'm more of a manager of right. that. So I'm not writing about cannabis. That mm. is still a world that is a little new to me. Um, I think because I don't partake in it, has. <laughs> I have OD'd on my share of edibles. <laughs> I, I cannot do it. Yep. Like it. I have scared myself away from <sighs> cannabis for the most part. Um, but it is definitely the amount of content that is available to write about. Mm-hmm. Just two years ago when that site launched, It's like night and day.
0: Interesting. I mean,
1: there's so much, so many stories being written about marijuana and cannabis Mm -hmm. and chefs experimenting with dinner series, you know, revolving around that. It's just the turn it has taken in the last couple of years is amazing to me.
0: Was it interesting and maybe this goes back to that gossip column that you never got to write for, Is it was it interesting? Because I was doing some research on some of the pieces you've written and it was like things from travel to Meghan Markle and like right. all these other different topics. Was yeah. that kind of like a refreshing change of pace or no?
1: No, it was. it's interesting to be on the ground floor of a digital magazine to see what it takes to really differentiate yourself and get Views mm-hmm. when there's so many online magazines to read, like how do you stand out? How do you get people to take notice? I see. So right now we have a breadth of content, so it ranges. It's not just for people who smoke. Mm-hmm. It's for people who are kind of interested and curious about it. Sure. Um, so we have stories about royalty and travel and wellness and lifestyle and fitness. In hopes that people will be interested in that content, and then while they're reading that content, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to stumble over to the medical marijuana section and read what's going on there. So it's basically a way to attract uh, people who don't want to be scared away by a quote-unquote marijuana site. Well, because
0: I feel like it flips the other way, too, where it's not – everybody thought that once it was legalized, everyone would just become this, like, lazy – cloud of haze kind of first people, (laughs) but it's like you go to Uncle Ike's and you see people of all walks of life going in and out of there, and it's not necessarily like you can put everybody in this one box.
1: Right, and JJ, who's the publisher, you know, this is his brainchild, and he specifically started this site to be sort of the anti-stoner site. Like, we don't use the word stoner. We don't really use the word pot a lot. He wants people to consider marijuana just like they consider aspirin or wine, you know? And if you think about it, there's not... uh, People are so cool with alcohol, totally. but marijuana scares the crap out of so mm-hmm. many people because they just assume that you're just going to get super stoned. But and
0: I'm pretty sure JJ, JJ doesn't is. even, yeah, no. I'm pretty sure JJ doesn't even smoke. No,
1: that. no, not at all. Yeah, which no, is wild. Yeah.
0: He's having a great year. <laughs> he is. He's really having a great year. It's fascinating. Um, Let's see. I was gonna <laughs> so to keep on keep on the alcohol train, we aren't drinking alcoholic beverages right now. We can. It's kinda <laughs> early. And my last guest actually actually brought a bottle of bourbon over. Oh wow. But um you produced a series that had that element to it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Five Shots. Oh, Five Shots. Yes. Oh
1: I love it so much. Um Small Screen Network picked it up, but some things have changed with that company. Okay. So I don't know what's going to happen to it. Mm-hmm. I have the trailer, I have the pilot. I had so much fun writing it. I just love the idea of sitting down with somebody I know well in the industry and just talking shop over booze because that happens anyway, yep, not as quickly as it does on camera, but I just I had so much fun. I shot four or five episodes. um not all of them are <laughs> should be airing because there's like this fine line where you want to appear drunk yeah it's a whole part of the show People uh-huh. want to see you go from sober to drunk yeah but it takes a while for those effects to set in mm-hmm. so but you also don't want to shoot for too long because nobody wants to sit around and watch like a 10 minute segment so you have to find that sweet spot where like in six minutes you can go from sober to drunk And just finding out how to shoot that Mm. was really, really tricky. That is
0: crazy tricky. There were
1: a couple chefs that did this show with me where we shot for an hour and a half. And you couldn't really see the progression of drunkenness. Yep. It was almost like we didn't drink fast enough. Interesting. But then for the pilot episode, I did it with Jeff Vance of Navy Strength. We slammed six shots in an hour. And I got so wasted, but you couldn't really see that on camera either because those effects didn't set in until literally I got into an Uber. Totally. You almost need to like roll the camera after you're done shooting. Yep, Just because that's when you get the most... That yeah. is so
0: wild though that you like You're not only playing with this person's attention span And like however much confidence they have In whatever they're talking about and bouncing from topic to topic But it's like where's your blood alcohol content yeah, right now right?
1: You're trying to like stay on point mm-hmm. You want to do at least five shots But like you want to spread them out but not too much But you don't want to start throwing up and yep. So th- the perfect episode would be an hour and a half so I could do five or six shots. It's never five yep. shots. It's always six or seven. God. Where I am not destroyed the next morning, uh-huh. but you can also see two people getting drunk. Right. And that hasn't happened yet. Interesting. But I love it because even if you can't really see the drunken effects, even though I think that's what everybody wants to see, mm-hmm. everyone does get more honest. Totally. So the truth comes out, you just happen to have like two people who look like they're sober, but... Probably are not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love, I love that. I'm just trying to find a home for it right now.
0: I think that uh, you've probably seen hot ones. Yes. Yeah, v- similar concept. Yours is even arguably a little bit more difficult to shoot. Yeah, and
1: people aren't there to promote their upcoming movie. Yeah, you no know? way. It's, not it's not just a, a conversation it's not a press junket. It uh-huh. is literally just a normal conversation.
0: And I love the fact that you said that. It, like, it, this stuff happens anyways. Yes. Right, talking shop at a bar. Yes. Drinking. And
1: People in the industry are pretty open and uh-huh. truthful, mm-hmm. you know? Those are some of the most honest, down-to-earth dudes.
0: And you're blowing off the doors with it, right? <laughs> giving them some alcohol. Yes. I'm going to insert an audience question here because there's a lot of line cooks and sous chefs and culinary school students listening, and at that stage in your career, when you're working in a restaurant, you aren't owning the place, your name's not on the door, you kind of had this weird relationship with people who write about food because yes what they do impacts your job But you don't necessarily interact with them on the day-to-day So i'm yeah. really really happy to be able to bring their questions to you So one, one question was and I think you saw this on twitter How do you go about critiquing food and what are the key points that you think about when you see slash taste a dish?
1: Yeah, well, I will say so I was the food editor for seattle magazine for about a year mm-hmm. and part of my job was to critique food and I made it very clear before I took that job that I could not say negative things because I already I was already friends with all these people. Huh. And it just looked bad. And I'm like, if you're okay with me picking, like, writing reviews of places that are good. If I go to a place and it sucks, like, I'm not going to write a negative review. If I go to a place and it's great, let's look at it as more of a recommendation. I see. I want to tell the story of the chef. It was very much combining restaurant experience <clears throat> with, like, my Radio segment Mm -hmm. of like, here's the story of the chef, and here's this restaurant. And so it was a lot of background information. I didn't dissect food like you would typically see in a restaurant review because I hate that shit. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't get me to go to a restaurant. Like, I am way more interested in like, what's the vibe? And like, who is this guy that owns this restaurant? Tell me his story. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, When you are a food critic in Seattle, unless you work for The Times, I think, you don't really have a dining budget. So it's Mm -hmm. not like you get to go to these places three times. You can barely afford to eat once, and that's probably coming out of your own pocket. Totally. So this idea – and actually, I did go to each place like three times just because I thought that was fair. Right. And so I did have that experience of like three different services. But when I say I was poor writing about food (laughs) – I really was. Like everyone thinks I think that you have like this black Amex card or you're getting reimbursed or people are paying for your food. Mm-hmm. And that is just not the case. No one is paying for your food. Certainly not where I worked. Right. Um, especially at eater. That you don't have a food yeah, budget. No way. That is all out of pocket mm-hmm. and you're not making very much money. So <clears throat> so it was important to me to get across to the reader how I felt as a diner being in that restaurant. Right. You know, I really very much wanted to bring in the atmosphere and the scene and the backstory. And I did spend a couple of paragraphs talking about the food, but not in the way... Like, I don't consider myself a food critic. I'm somebody who likes to... I'm a dining enthusiast, right? Mm. And your average diner, the people who aren't in the industry, they don't care about the minutiae of how a dish is flavored or plated. I don't think. I mean, if I don't find that interesting, I don't think... You know, the majority of, you know, just people who go out casually to restaurants. They're just like, tell me where I should go. Yep. Yep. Right.
0: I think that's a very interesting insight where sometimes people want to just know where. And again, back to that initial question, where do I go? Just tell me where to go. And
1: they just look at the stars. Mm -hmm. Oh, this place got three stars. I'm going to go.
0: And I think that the other really paradoxical element of that is that, say, for example, you were to say that. The Cacio e Pepe was really great at this place or n- no, sorry to to flip it. The Cacio e Pepe was horrible at this place. Yeah. Chances are that restaurant's probably going to see that you critiqued him in that way and they're going to slash that shit right off the menu. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, what's the point in saying that this was bad? And then people are going to go there and they're going to be like, it's not on the menu anymore. Right. So then what's the point? So you're much more likely if you convey, well, the vibe is like this or the fixtures like make make me feel like this. Yeah. That's probably going to be way more consistent yeah. if that person goes to eat at the restaurant. And
1: also a lot of local reviews you read, this is after one visit. Uh-huh. So who's to say that that was a really crappy dish when you went, but it's not going to be <clears> improved. <in> pres- <throat> maybe... You know, the chef was out that night. Maybe you yep. had some new guy on the line yep. to fuck that dish up. Mm-hmm. So to critique a restaurant negatively after one or even two visits, I mean, I don't know. I just, to me, that makes my skin crawl when I see a negative review, especially when it's... Um, Someone I know who's mm-hmm. getting ripped apart mm-hmm. that really affects you Hugely. When you own a restaurant Or you're the chef of a restaurant That just got annihilated in the press mm-hmm. Like come on that's so mean It's just unnecessarily mean If it's a crap restaurant Then don't review it I feel like people just are looking for recommendations Totally totally So that was my whole That was my whole
0: aim When I go I make videos when I go out to eat but I'm very, very, I, I had this battle the other day when someone asked me, why don't you, no, I was talking about, I went out to eat with a friend and they were like, oh, you're making a video about this. Are you going to talk about this element? Because it was like, I said something along the lines of, I don't think, I wouldn't have done it like this. I, if I was cooking this dish, I would have done it like this. And they're like, and you're going to put that in the video? And I was like, no, I would never, ever, ever do that. And I had to think about why I don't do that. And I think it's very interesting where, yes, I could tell you that I would have included a cracker with this dish or I would have added a little bit more acid to it, but then it would have it's it's then it's it's not my dish, but it's not your dish anymore. Right. Right? And I'm very, very, very careful to do that, especially and I, I I say that. I'm very transparent of like, this is just a documentation of my experience of one meal at this restaurant. And yeah, it's so true. It's such a funny, it's such a funny paradoxical thing. But uh, thank, thank you for that because it, th- that provides a lot of clarity to people who are like, food critics are the worst, or, yeah, they're out I'd, to get people, or
1: yeah, and also I was different in the fact that people knew who I was. I wasn't incognito. Sure. I mean, there are people who write a restaurant reviews in Seattle that I have never met in my twenty-something years writing about food. So it's a little different. I can't slam a restaurant and then you know, go back. I mean, people know me. It's yep. just it, I can't be totally. a faceless critic. And I remember some other food critic kind of ripped me for that early on. Like, you know, this woman took pride in the fact that people didn't know who she was. P.S. Uh, Most chefs know who the food critics mm-hmm. are in Seattle. They have pictures of you. Mm-hmm. And plus, you're probably back there with your little notepad sitting by yourself, ordering one of everything on the menu. Right. I mean, chefs can pick up on that pretty quickly. Totally. But this idea that I can't write a restaurant review because people know who I am is just crap. You know, This I, that I think knowing people in the industry buys you access and it allows you to include facts that other people would not. So I just think that's bullshit. This whole like, well, you can't be a true representation of the industry and be a food critic if people can recognize you it's like everyone is recognized it's fine
0: is there value though in going under a pseudonym or a
1: probably maybe Mm -hmm. i think it depends on who's cooking i mean i would well here's the funny thing is that sometimes i think i get way worse service than anyone else because people see me sitting at the bar or the restaurant and they're like oh it's just julene like uh. she's cool <laughs> like we'll get to the real customers first meanwhile 20 minutes go by and i don't even have a glass of water in front of me like people uh. take advantage of the fact that i'm a friend and i'm not gonna make a fuss and don't worry about me guys like serve everyone else so i mean that happens often Uh so this idea that I get special treatment I mean that's just not that's just not the case
0: I think I like to try to find that happy medium too where it's like it's not because it goes it'll it'll frequently go the other way there's a story I like to tell of when Anna and I went to Mexico we went to Ensenada and my friend was a sous chef at this place called Manzanilla and the chef there was like Latin America's world's 50 best restaurant and he made us a reservation at this place, and he said him and his wife were going to go. Him and his wife were not going to go. It was a reservation for Anna and I. And so then we show up, and he called them the day the day of and was basically like, hey, me and my wife aren't going to be able to make it. These two other people are going instead. It's a chef from Norway. And so they basically like worked their faces off to try to cook for Benito Molina, and then we got, like, the brunt of it, which was amazing. But I think it's a really funny, like, uh, getting hooked up kind of thing when it can sometimes. And and it's a funny thing that happened when restaurants started to realize. It was a was it a New York Times? Was it an eater thing where I think it was Pete Wells gave Danielle two stars because yeah. they were hooking him up too much? <laughs> It's such a funny thing when it can go the other way like that.
1: Yeah, and honestly, I've been sent like a couple of comp dishes every now and then, but mm-hmm. I've never really gotten the hookup. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's just a Seattle thing. And I think Seattle chefs are really over these entitled like influencers and mm-hmm. like everyone's a food writer now, yeah, right? Yeah. Like Joe Schmo who happens to have a food blog nobody's mm-hmm. read, like walks in and expects special treatment. Mm-hmm. Restaurants are tired of that. Totally. I mean they're they're over it.
0: Totally. And That is one thing that I guess is maybe a little bit curious about Seattle that I saw in other cities is that like if you go to New York and you say that you're industry, you'll probably find a discount on your check. You'll probably find a couple of different um, dishes that get sent out. I feel like that doesn't exist in Seattle, which was kind of weird for me to see as a chef. And it's not to say that like I deserve any hookup because I'm not working at any restaurants in Seattle. But even like I would go out with friends of mine who work at other restaurants and you get a full price check. Nothing, nothing. (laughs) And it's like I feel like – part of that is because you get disappointed at these rests like i went out to eat at walrus and carpenter and i didn't get a hookup so when you come here to how to cook a wolf why would i why would i give you a hookup you know what i mean yeah. and so it's like it's a tit for tat kind of thing which is yeah. kind of bizarre and I wish there would be someone that would come along because, I don't know, it's such a great experience going out as an industry person. And I think
1: that you're starting to see more chefs hosting like industry night at their uh-huh. restaurant after service on a Monday sure. or whatnot. That might be coming back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like I see that more. Maybe.
0: <laughs> Is it late night?
1: Yeah, like 9 to 1 a.m. Uh-huh. on a Monday. Interesting. Yeah.
0: I did want to ask this though, and maybe you've answered it already, but it, it's on the topic of like conflict of interest. And how do you kind of like gauge helping friends versus putting out kind of an objective list? Because at a certain point, it's all subjective, right? Like it, you're one human's opinion right. on your experience at this place. So where do you kind of draw that line?
1: Uh, yeah, as far as like doing somebody a solid. Yeah, and putting them on a list. A mm-hmm. Yeah, I never really ran into that. I will say when I first started at Eater, my very first time having to update that Eater 38, which I swear to God, <laughs> I wish people would understand, just because you're on the Eater 38, that does not mean you are the be- Here's what happens, like, as your city editor, every four months you have to go in, take four restaurants off that list and add four new ones. Interesting. You have
0: to. Interesting. Even if you
1: think that that list can stand the test of time, you are required to change it every four months. Sure. So who is to say that the editor at the time wasn't just like, no, you know, I had a good meal at this place that's only a year and a half old. I guess I'll add that and take off Canlis, you know? Like <laughs> it's canless, not exactly
0: scientific. No,
1: Canlis wasn't even on the list when I started. I remember I took off Altura. Holy crap. I mean, the comment section. Wow. It just ripped me apart. And I'm like, listen, guys, I had to take something off, like... I didn't know what to pick. It was like Russian roulette. Like, Mm -hmm. which one of your kids Mm -hmm. do you want to give away? Sophie's Choice? Like, just, I don't know. I just took it off. It was a weak moment. Um, I hadn't been there yet. Like, in...
0: And that was on the list before you started. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but I
1: put Canlis on, and mm-hmm. people freaked out about that. Like, that restaurant should be on there. I'm like, it's Canlis. Whether or not you like it or not, it's, like, one of the city's stalwarts. Like, it should be on that list.
0: Canlis should, in, at least in my opinion, should be. I haven't had a meal there yet, but it should be on the list. Yeah. Just based on reputation yes. and the what they offer. I had a really bad meal at Altura. And so, like, to hear that, I I I, I totally understand what they're trying to do. It's it, – it, back to talking about that place that, that – That feeling you get When it's not That good of a vibe Yeah That was Altura for me Like I walked in And it was just not And
1: see And that's what makes Those lists so arbitrary Uh huh So Mm -hmm. right Like if you were the editor You wouldn't include that But who's to say That the editor Currently loves that place Or had an amazing meal There were definitely times Where I thought about Taking a place off the list And I would just be like Shit I'm gonna hear About this Mm -hmm. I never let that deter me Yeah I don't think I don't remember Ever playing favorites um no, I mean no, I know what you're saying, but I don't know. Maybe like I, I said, don't maybe I don't realize sure, that I was playing sure. favorites. Subconscious
0: but, bias, but
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's so
0: it, it is subjective. And I mean that's why you're you have the role that you have yes. when you're when you're in that role. Yes. I and I also want
1: to make clear that the eater heat map is not the best new restaurants in Seattle. They are the restaurants that are less than six months old. So people who get all <laughs> riled up because a restaurant made a list Everyone eventually will make the list. Sure, like just hold tight. Yep, your time is coming. Yep, don't worry about it.
0: Interesting. That's so funny. I was gonna ask. You could have started writing about guitars or woodworking or anything. Any birds? Why food? Why chefs? Why restaurants? I
1: I think it was instilled in me when I was little. We went out to eat a lot when I was a kid. Like from a very young age, I remember my parents introducing me to nice restaurants and it was at a time where, you know, we'd go out to Sunday brunch every weekend or Saturday night dinner. I think my mom just like got tired of cooking. So we went out at least every weekend and my Mm -hmm. mom was a really good cook too. So I just grew, grew up around that, but I really like going out. I just like one of my favorite things. I just, even if it's just for a drink, mm-hmm. I like just, it's just an excuse to like get out of the house and mm-hmm. be in a different environment. And I just really appreciate that. It speaks to me for whatever reason.
0: Do you prefer going solo? Do you prefer having a partner or a larger group? Or mm-hmm.
1: I like going out. Like I, there are people who I really like going out with. I like mm-hmm. going out with my boyfriend, mm-hmm. but I definitely do like going out by myself too. I love just, you know, if it's like 5 o'clock and nobody's free and I can just, you know, walk to someplace on Capitol Hill and sit at the bar. I do a lot of work. Sometimes I'll bring my laptop on a Sunday and just pony up somewhere and have mimosas and eat breakfast and totally. get some work done. And I really, I really like that. Yeah, the problem that I encounter being a single person who just wants to sit at the bar, sometimes you just cannot – get the bartender to stop talking to you whether it's like you know like you're not always there to talk to someone sometimes i just want to be left alone Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i don't need to have constant conversation
0: and again (laughs) back to that subjective thing (laughs) if that person were to leave you alone and you were looking for that conversation day horrible service
1: yes just kind of really unattentive yeah Yeah, read a crowd yeah that's so interesting
0: (laughs) uh MiaTaylor.com on Instagram asks tips for getting into food writing because she's coming from the point of view of that You know, there's a ton of bloggers out there and she wants to write for a larger publication
1: Hmm. I would say continue with the blog Um, Get yourself invited to like media events. Mm -hmm. That is not hard Um, Basically, there's just a few people in Seattle who do food PR if you can get invited to their party or know somebody who can bring you as a plus one and just start networking. I feel like it's all about who you know. Yep. And then just start throwing your hat into the ring when like, you know, somebody needs a new editor or, you know, I think it's all about um, like Alicia Vermillion, who's now the deputy editor of Seattle Met and she's their food editor too. I, um, Like she started writing a blog. Her writing was really good and she always had like the in on what was happening in Seattle and bigger publications started to take notice of that and would start looking at her blog to get their information.
0: Whoa. You know,
1: so. Flip the script a little. Yeah, so then when this position came open, she was like the first Seattle Eater editor Mm -hmm. because people were already familiar with her work. And you know, like it's all about timing. If you're really good and you've got i also think that you need to differentiate yourself like don't write about the same thing that like eater and seattle magazine and seattle met are writing about people want new content like write about something that not everyone else is writing about i don't know what that is but you know for me it's like industry stuff mm-hmm. like whatever your strengths are in the food industry whatever you can what value you bring do that maybe you're like an amazing chef maybe you just you can cook with strawberries better than anyone else sure like just find that thing that you do that other people can't and just keep doing that
0: my my hack would be like look i mean maybe the last time seattle met went to Canlis was 2016 and it's like if you can (laughs) jump one jump one rung up on seo of them like (laughs) then that's your that's your golden thing or like hey i went to canless and I can write really well here's a piece would you want to publish it yeah
1: or here's how to eat at canless when you only have $200 totally totally here's
0: how to make the most of your experience or or, or, or whatever it is yeah provide value totally provide value back to talking about going out to eat when you were a kid this actually segues great a dot s e e i i on Instagram says what was your favorite childhood food and did it impact you later on in your career
1: I remember when I first discovered bagels and cream cheese. It was like Sunday brunch and I lived in the Portland area at the Uh time and I was obsessed to the point where my mom would buy them at the grocery store and I would just make them for myself all the time. Like that was just the best. Totally. I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday. My fondest memories of being a kid going out to eat is when the server with the check would leave you like a little piece of candy Uh or a little treat. Or even when you went to the bank, like none of that happens as an adult.
0: Yep. yep. <laughs> you
1: got all this free stuff when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. And I just I just love that. I would say there wasn't like a specific food other than like the bagels and cream cheese that I remember like have specific memories about. I think it was just the general, like, carnival atmosphere of being a child in the eighties going out. To right. Eat because it was a different experience. There's more That's... entertainment in video games and you know, it was just it was a, dining out as a child is so much different than dining out as an adult.
0: <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. In doing my, a little bit of homework on you, I found that you had a podcast of your own once upon a time. And can you, I, I was I was hoping to gain some insight into how you feel about how that speaking audibly either about food or about the industry and maybe on camera with five shots and other stuff yeah. differs from... Writing and how you do you have a preference now one or the other because it's so easy now to publish
1: I much prefer being on camera and speaking got it Writing is a it's not that it's a struggle for me, but it's really stressful for me um because I feel like I am a visual like I want people to see me talk I feel like I get my point across more when I can use hand gestures and facial expressions but when I'm trying to parlay that onto a piece of paper I'm just like god I sound like a dummy or you like lose I those
0: subtleties yeah I don't
1: mm-hmm. have any personality. like how can I make this and then I'm just reading my own writing and I'm like did I write that mm-hmm. I, what how mm-hmm. how did I even get those words out of me I don't know I find definitely. I love being on camera and not because I love seeing myself but I feel like my personality I'm not afraid of the camera I just like I like that interaction that visual interaction
0: and you feel like the guest or the audience then gets the full picture of what you're really yeah, trying to say I think so I had a I, I would write it's not that I would write it's that I was constantly bitch in high school about how much I hated writing <laughs> and now that I find like with so much of the content I script out a ton of my stuff now and when I will write an episode of the podcast I will write literally like 22 pages worth of stuff in like half a day and it's it comes so natural because it literally i'm literally writing what i would speak yeah and then that translates to me being good on camera and so it's like it goes both so like i got good at writing because i got good on camera. So d- did you find that all this experience of writing then made you better in <clears throat> drafting up an idea for a new show or, or because mm. you have experience on camera that that then made you a better writer?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I would say I had such a fear of public speaking until I started doing, I used to go on Q13 every Friday morning to do some sort of roundup, like here's top five kid-friendly restaurants or top five best pastas or whatever. And then I just got used to seeing me myself on camera. And I think that took away a lot of the fear that I had of just like, oh my god, what am I going to look like when I see myself on camera? And it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But once you see yourself on camera, So many times, you don't care anymore. And then you can just forget that it's there because you realize no one's focusing on your hair. You know, like you can just calm down a little bit. If I had to give a speech in front of a live audience, that would terrify me. Mm -hmm. But being on camera, it's easy when you're just talking to a few people and then there's like a camera guy. Like it's not a crowd, even though lots of people are watching you.
0: It also seems like there's an element of like putting the idea out there. And then revisiting it, where you kind of like second guess yourself. That kind of maybe that that's what I'm hearing as far as like if you write something or even like when you give a speech, you probably want to like pre-draft up something. Yeah. But when it's like totally candid, you do better in that environment. Definitely.
1: And also, I would say the more I am on camera or radio, I think that does help with the writing because you're getting your thoughts out. As opposed to just sitting in front of your laptop for eight hours mm-hmm. and then you forget what you sound like and mm-hmm. then you f- kind of forget <laughs> yeah, not yeah, who yeah. you are. Yeah. But you know, like there's a disconnect totally. when you aren't talking to people mm-hmm. for long periods of time. Um, so, yeah, I think just getting over the fear of being judged, I don't think anybody cares. And I think ultimately that's what scares me about writing is like, oh, crap, someone's eventually going to read this and they're mm-hmm. going to think I'm just illiterate. Like, yep. how did this woman write a book? Yeah. You know, yep. that terrifies me. Or like sending my manuscript into my editor. Like, man, she's going to wonder why she ever gave me the chance mm-hmm. to write this. Mm-hmm. That. But once you get over that... It's much easier because
0: sometimes like you'll you'll put an idea down and whatever you went with your gut with is Totally the right thing you should have went with But for some so. reason you go to edit it and you turn <laughs> it into something that it's not supposed to be Yes um, You brought it up. I didn't bring it up <laughs> writing a book Seattle cooks amazing I had a ton you. of fun helping you in my little small way. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, totally and you know It's it's always up there. I didn't prep my kitchen to have that up there for you But what was that experience like? Writing Seattle cooks.
1: That was very fulfilling. I didn't real. I had never written a book before, and the opportunity just fell into my lap. Um, I'm glad I did it, knowing how much work. Fortunately, I had a job that allowed me some flexibility to write that. Um, it was a lot of work. The recipe testing was probably the hardest part mm-hmm. because when you're taking a chef's recipe and throwing it back to them and saying this needs to something's not right here, or this cookbook is for the home cook, you need to convert your grams into ounces. Or
0: tablespoons.
1: Most people don't have a scale. And trying to explain that to chefs They don't, it's like, it Mm -hmm. never occurred to like who cooks without a scale. It's like, you need to bring out your teaspoons and your tablespoons. Like, I don't even own that. You know, they're like, it's going to be off. The measurements are going to be off. I'm like, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it's going to have to be. Totally. So that was difficult. And also just constantly feeling like you're bothering these chefs, whether it's because you have to ask them more questions, or like your edits came back, and your editor wants more clarification on their background, or blah, 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 and something's not right. With I mean, it was just like, oh my god, I'm going to come away from this experience with like 40 less chef friends. But they were all super, for the most part, very pleasant to work with. Totally. But now I'm working on the winemaker version of that, so Mm -hmm. I have to go through all of that again. So... Crazy. I'm a little nervous about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was just going to say that it, it it is like the dark side of being that middle person sometimes, like yes. with Seattle Cooks, where it's like you have so many benefits when you have a say and it can be a little bit spontaneous and whatever. But when you <sighs> rope in a couple of more gatekeepers into the game, yeah. it doesn't always remain fun. Yeah. Unfortunately. Because also
1: you go through two edit rounds. hmm And then you go through a couple of proofreading rounds and some copy edit rounds, Mm -hmm. three very different things. And so you are basically going back and forth with chefs for like eight months or nine. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I just thought they're going to think that this is a never ending. They are going to wish they never signed up for this. But fortunately, the payoff is worth it. Like everyone feels accomplished. The chefs get to see their picture in a book and it just makes everything so much better. Right. (laughs) Right.
0: So for everybody listening, Seattle Cooks is is a compendium of different Seattle chefs, a little yeah. bit about their bio, beautiful headshots of them, G- two to three dishes, I would say. Yeah, two like, dishes yeah, each. Two dishes so each.
1: 40 chefs, 80 recipes, and it is like an anthology series that uh, started in Canada. So it's, you know, every major city, technically, there's like Ottawa Cooks and Vancouver Eats and Toronto Cooks and Portland Cooks, mm-hmm. and I think somewhere in te- Texas is going to be the next one, so.
0: It's just a really nice snapshot, too, of kind of, like, where the city is at right yeah. now. Because I can only imagine, like, uh, 1997, Julian <laughs> looks at this book now, and you're like, "This there's this many talented people working here? Like, that's got to be wild.
1: Yeah, but also, several of those chefs are gone now, and yep. the restaurants are closed in just a very short amount of time, and it's like, this is how fast the Seattle food scene is happening yep. where it's like the book hasn't even come out yet. And two of the places have already closed and three of the chefs have gone to different restaurants. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, please no more people leave yep. until after this book. comes yeah, out. Totally.
0: I, there was one more thing I was going to touch on where it was, you know, for as much stress as you probably went through future Julian would probably tell stressed out Julian, like you're way better off. Stressing yourself out and maybe like pissing a few people off in their inbox to make sure that this comes out as a solid piece because you would have probably been way more pissed off if you would have been like, "These are just my friends. I won't reach out. Something's going to happen," and then you get a message on, right, (laughs) Twitter that's like, "This recipe didn't work," and it's like, "If I only would have just bothered him," (laughs) you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, the scaling down of recipes was also very challenging. Uh It's like this isn't a staff meal. It's not for forty. No, this is maybe two to four people. Oh man, (laughs)
0: that's so funny. So. You mentioned it already, but new new cookbook. Yes. You have it slated for 2020, spring 2020. Yeah. Winemaker yep. collabo. What does that look like? <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is going to be a learning experience for me because unlike the chefs in Seattle cooks who I knew 95% of them pretty well. So I went into these interviews knowing what to ask them. And it is the exact opposite for the winemakers. Like I know who these people are for the most part. But I don't know their story. So I don't know if that's going to work in my favor or just cause me undue stress, right? Like, on one hand, it's like not really knowing their whole story is going to make it more interesting for me because I'm hearing it for the first time as opposed to listening to the story of, say, like, you know, Ethan Stoll, where everyone's heard that story by this point. Yep. So... Um, I don't know. It'll be fun for me to get to meet all of these people. That's the part I'm most excited about. Mm -hmm. I'm so familiar with these wines, but I've never really gotten to know the winemaker. So I will leave this experience with 40 new friends that I'm super stoked about. But I also don't want to fuck up their profiles. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I ask all the pertinent questions. And so on one hand, I'm like coming into this, not knowing these people is going to be an asset. But also I don't want to leave anything out yep. like a glaring omission sure like what do you mean you didn't know that winemaker was blind yeah yeah yeah, yeah like yeah. man i didn't even think exactly to ask that. <laughs> exactly
0: so is it going to be a very similar format to yeah, seattle exactly cooks exactly the same okay so, so
1: those winemakers will be paired with a chef i and the
0: chef see will make
1: two dishes but the dishes will be photographed the chefs will not Tight. The winemakers will be the ones that are photographed and have their profiles written
0: and so. then they will share a little bit about why this wine pairs yep. Got yep. it. So Smart.
1: the dishes will be paired with one or two varietals with some tasting notes and yeah.
0: And so it's going to strictly stay to Washington for yep. the most part. Yep. Got it. Washington winemakers. Got it. Got it. Got it. <sighs> Man, I keep, I feel like we keep covering project after project of yours. <laughs> the the Ono oh project, the yeah. one night only project. Yeah. It makes so much sense because it gives you kind of like this really tangible connection between like I have this chef. I have these guests, you get to kind of like do it in a way that's exclusive, it's collaborative, like it just makes so much sense. And so can you share a little bit about how that came about and then kind of what's in the pipeline for that going forward?
1: It was kind of similar to chef where my friend and now business partner, Melissa Peterman, we were drinking one night because that's when all the great ideas (laughs) happened. And I think we were both in between jobs and we were just like, I remember we were drinking pumpkin martinis at Elliott's. And we were just like how can we use our connections for good and we just started throwing around this idea of doing these dinners and like it took a couple years before we did our first one and we didn't know what we were doing we're like we just need to do a dinner so i had a friend who had a really nice home in magnolia they let us have this dinner there um we Got Chef Brandon Kirksey, who's no longer in Seattle, but he was a longtime Ethan Stoll chef, and he opened Rione 13. Yep. And so it was basically a preview dinner for that restaurant before it opened. And then we had Chris Gorman there as the winemaker, and he just donated all of his wine. And we sold tickets for 100 bucks a pop, and I think we sold 20, maybe 25, however many people they could fit in their mm-hmm. living room. And we're just like, we have no idea what we're doing. Let's just do it, though. You know, we had a photographer. Um, We just made it happen. And it took hours because we basically had to clear out their living room, bring in rental furniture. It was an all-day affair. Totally. And then we did our first real one, like where we sold tickets to Mm -hmm. the public. So that that practice dinner was in June 2012. We had our first ticketed dinner in August of 2012 with Josh Henderson at FSD mm-hmm. um, And it was when Josh Henderson hadn't even opened Westward I wow. mean, he, I don't even think he had Yeah, this this way back in the day yet. That was way back in the day mm-hmm. So the whole idea was just like Let's get these chefs And this was before pop-ups were mm-hmm. such a big deal mm-hmm. But it was like, let's just get a chef To cook the kind of food they want to cook right. As opposed to what they're known for And
0: what was your role in these events at just the time? Just
1: getting Like we were basically party planners. I mm-hmm. mean, we hosted it. We got the chef. We got the winemaker. We sold the tickets. We did all the setup. We did all the cleanup. We did all the serving. I mean we did everything. Sure. It was really exhausting. Tight. And we used to do those every month mm-hmm. for like two years. And then we don't have a location and we never did. Yep. It just got to be so exhausting. Mm-hmm. So now we do them when they make sense. Got it. And we try and do them in people's restaurants mm-hmm. where we don't have to set up crappy rental tables and chairs. Yep. If yep. we don't have to. Yep.
0: So and so is there any that you're looking forward to in twenty nineteen or you-
1: we need to figure out what our what makes sense. So mm-hmm. in twenty eighteen we did the series with KEXP where yep. we paired a chef with a DJ. Tight. Which having live music at our dinner event is life changing. Mm-hmm. It's like wow you can actually hear the music nice. of our people talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had five restaurants lined up. Um one of the restaurants we were going to do was Little Fish, Zoe Antonitsa's yep. new restaurant, which hasn't opened yet. Yeah,
0: I know. She's so it was initially going to
1: open in 2017, November. <laughs> and then we thought, okay, it'll be open by August of 2018. And now I think she thinks summer of this year. Got it. So whenever that happens, we would still like to do our final KEXP dinner. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but Is she still looking to go in the market? Yeah. Okay. I mean, they have it all yeah. ready to go. That's it's what I just, thought delay after delay Mm -hmm. after delay Mm -hmm. as it goes yeah if you had if you had to kind of like draw out what that ideal role for you would be at like a pop-up or dinner or something like that what where because sometimes you have to wear different hats and that's just the nature of the gig but in like a perfect world what is your (laughs) involvement with something like that
1: um i just i love organizing the event i love getting the chef getting the winemaker whatever the booze component is selling tickets promoting it marketing it and then i just want to reappear at the end of the night when i can just pour myself a glass of wine mm-hmm. the end yeah, yeah, i don't yeah, yeah, want yeah. to i don't i never worked in the service industry for a very specific reason yep. like i don't love just the working you're on your feet so with these ono dinners I mean these are like 20 hour days for us totally you're setting up these dinners and then you're serving everyone and then you're cleaning up and it's so exhausting so yeah that is the least fun part for me just because by the end of the night you're in a really good mood because you just pulled off this great dinner Mm mm-hmm But all that stuff leading up to that, it's like, oh my gosh, is someone going to get sick? Is someone going to complain? Is someone going to no-show? You're just like, all these little things you're worried about, you know? That is almost too much for me. So yes, in a perfect world, I would just be responsible for everything leading up until dinner. Tight.
0: (laughs) We need to to work together, Julian, is what I'm hearing. Because it's the opposite for me. It's like... I hate the marketing I hate as much as like I love creating content and stuff it's like the selling of the tickets and all this stuff is just like I just want to cook at the dinner and like I just want to execute in the moment and everything else you know all that other stuff that you're talking about is not and I just think it's a so it's because I have the same feeling it's like (laughs) you get to the end of it and it's that that when you wake up super hungover and you're like I'm never drinking again and then (laughs) all of a sudden something comes along and you're like okay fine okay fine. It's yep. just such a funny cycle to yeah, go through I know Oh man I'm gonna go into rapid fire questions yeah. Doesn't have to be rapid fire answers okay. But you know What is a common mistake that you'll see new writers Or new media people make
1: um, Let's see Like they're trying too hard to sound professional Instead of just writing in their own voice It's like you're reading this and you are like I feel like you're, you're trying to be someone else
0: And you it's know? obvious
1: Yeah Or you just come out of the gate And you just are being an asshole Because you think that like, people really want a refreshing voice And you're like, you're just being a dick <laughs> You don't need to be a dick Totally
0: What about Chef's new in the book publishing space? Is there like a common mistake that you'll see whether, I mean, you mentioned kind of like giving recipes that are for 40 people instead of two to four. I think that's it. Yeah.
1: I think being able to cook for the home cook is very important. A lot of these chefs who did Seattle cooks eventually want to write their own cookbook and I don't know if they want to do that anymore. Yep. Yep.
0: (laughs) It's like this comes with the territory, dude.
1: Yeah. It's other chefs are probably not going to be buying your book.
0: Totally. And that gets, it's the same with food sometimes I find. You know, you're cooking food for other chefs and it's not always the case when someone will not even know exactly what it is that you did in this dish. Yeah. And it's like it might get you some respect on Instagram from another chef that's following you. But does that really matter?
1: Right. When you're writing a cookbook, you have to have the home cook in mind, not another chef. Yep. You can't assume everyone knows what. This piece of equipment is or what this cooking method
0: is totally I gave this piece of advice because a friend of mine is a is a blogger and he's very opinionated He's very well-spoken has a lot of good insight But he will often write from the perspective of this is kind of how you can please me and I get scared when some friends of mine read it because I have this fear that they will start cooking for him As opposed to cooking for because he realistically he is the 1% he is the 1% of people who can compare what it is that you're doing to the actual thing that he has context for in from this dish in Spain do you know what I mean (laughs) and average Joe the 99% has no idea and I fear that trying to appease these people doesn't always make you come out ahead and I don't know. You can't
1: alienate your base. Totally. This isn't modernist cuisine. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah, on a whole other level. Yeah, model. just
0: be cognizant of, like, who you're actually cooking for. You're cooking at home. Is there Which a technique? Rarely happens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is there a technique that you're still intimidated by in the kitchen or something that you're- Everything. <laughs> okay, so th- this was going to be my follow-up is, is, is there something that you're working on getting better at when you cook for yes. yourself? So
1: I like to experiment with plant-based foods. Yep. So I am trying to make like cheese sauces and stuff that have the same texture. So I made macaroni and cheese last week and okay. I loved it. But trying to get the cheesiness using, you know, like cashews that you soaked overnight yep. and things that I'm not used to using as ingredients. Totally. Makes it really fun. Um but it's just a completely different way of cooking for me. Because instead of just adding butter and cheese, you're making your cheese.
0: Have you experimented with nutritional yeast?
1: Yes. I always have nutritional yeast in move. my cupboard. I like sprinkle it on everything. Yeah. It's, it's hella really good. good. It's hella good. If people knew what you could make with soaked cashews, I mean, it is a game changer. Totally. <laughs>
0: I always like taking people to Frankie and Joe's and not telling them that it's plant-based. Right? That's the most fun in the world. Yes. Cuz yes. it's like this is vegan, gluten-free, everything. Yeah, and it's like and good. it's like and you don't feel like shit after. No, that's the big that's absolutely. the best part. That's the best part I about Frankie totally agree. and Joe's. Cuz my sweet tooth is massive. Me too. And I'm always down, <laughs> always down for Frankie and Joe's. I normally ask the question of what's the best dish you've had in recent memory, but because you're so knee-deep in the wine world right now, is there a best wine that you've had in recent memory mm, that comes to mind?
1: I don't know. You know, I'm really into, f- I'm more into French wines now than I have been. Okay. Just because my boyfriend is really into French wines and I s- tend to end up at Lake Caviste a lot. Mm-hmm. So David Butler, who owns Lake Caviste, has introduced me to some great wines. Um, I couldn't tell you <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> what they are. Yeah. But I'm trying to think... Um, um, Washington wines if there's something I feel like I have so many wines at home and mm-hmm. I'm trying to like you know I will tell you that my book launch party as you know was at Rhodey Cellars mm-hmm. and they have this like southern blend that I really really dig and everyone who I have poured that wine for or given a bottle to really loves it too it's just one of those like crowd-pleasing wines and it's not like a huge, big Washington red cab by any mm-hmm. means. It's super drinkable, and I would say that. Yeah, I had I had a case in my living room, and that lasted maybe a month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really awesome. like roadie Cellars. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Are you the type of person who will buy a wine and sit on it and let it no. hang out?
1: Buy it uh, and drink it. Yeah, I've got a couple of bottles that I'm saving for like a special occasion, but I don't know what that is going to be.
0: You're not the person who's like, well, I'm going to buy this in 2011 and wait seven and a half years and then...
1: No, I do not have temperature control in my apartment and I don't have like a wine fridge, so I Mm -hmm. have no way of controlling yeah, that, those variables. which is a little important. Yeah, yeah yeah Someday, maybe when I have a wine cellar, totally, sure.
0: Totally. I mean, this book could be a great place to start that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Just ask
0: for a case from everybody <laughs> that you meet.
1: I need a case. <laughs> I Buy a forgot storage to mention, unit. In order to be part of this book, yeah, yeah, I yeah. need a case of I wine. I need a case.
0: I mean, use some of the funds to get a storage unit and just <laughs> hang on to it. Absolutely. Throw a party in 10 years. Mm, which one do I want to do next? What can hospitality slash media people like us be doing better to help the next generation coming up the people who are like I said the lady who's just starting her blog or or the person in journalism school who's thinking about maybe I want to try this food thing what can we people like us be doing better to kind of like help them out
1: I would say you know inspirational stories go a long way like making it clear how you got where you are um I think people need to hear that you know, not just, the fluffy
0: version either. No, yeah. Just like
1: I was dirt poor for 25 years. <laughs> and then finally I got a job that paid OK. Uh-huh. You know, people I think sometimes, especially the food industry seems very exclusive, like only certain people get in, like only people who are great cooks or only people with exceptional writing skills or perfect palates. And it's just like everyone has something they can bring to the table. Right. So if you think that you are have some value to bring to the industry then just do it and just wait it out you know if you're good at what you do something will happen like you will advance I don't know how or when or what that looks like but everybody's road is different so and not just not be an asshole god I know people so when I if anybody ever wants to pick my brain like if somebody just, horrible phrase by the way right? I know totally <laughs> or hey can we grab coffee I will always usually just say yes, Mm -hmm. especially if it's somebody who just wants some tips like, yes, I will have coffee with you because so many people had coffee with me when I was going through this phase, too. And some of those people that I've had coffee with have ended up being really good friends of mine. But I know people who complain wildly about I cannot I'm so tired of people emailing me and asking me if they can pick my brain. No, you can't. My time is valuable. Well, fuck off. Like. You know, these are young people who are just trying to make their way into the industry. Like, you don't have 45 minutes to spare. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't see what the big deal is. Totally. Like, there's always a payoff. And I just think people, you know, get a little too worked up over, you know, giving advice for free. Heaven forbid you're giving advice for free.
0: I think that comes from your perspective because you are what some people would call like a super connector, right? Like you have, you're really good at kind of like connecting the dots between, I mean, like you said, like this person has a specific party and they want it to be Italian themed. Perfect. I've got just the chef that would help you out with that. And I think that, that mentality lends you to, to think that way when you get these questions of like. Because you can see the eventual payoff of yes. like, if I help you out, you know what I mean? Maybe down the line, like I'll want to write an article about your restaurant someday or totally. I'll want to have you on this new show that I'm going to do or you want to be in my cookbook someday. I feel like a lot of people see it as very transactional yes, when they absolutely. get these questions. It's a good word. And so, I mean, if I would have to give any advice, it would be to one, not use the phrase pick your brain <laughs> and two, like be cognizant of the fact that like... I, I find that there's a lot of value in like if you're a student and you ask for a cup of coffee as opposed to like leading with I'm a line cook here and I want to get a cup of coffee. It's kind of a different story sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like, I don't know, it, 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 cut, leading with a specific question helps so much as opposed to I want to pick your brain. Yeah. Because I'm more likely, because I get a lot of questions and I'm more likely to say yes if it's like, I'm really struggling with this 30 seat pop up that I'm trying to sell out and I really want to know how to send this email to this venue on how to negotiate a price. I'm way more likely to answer that question as opposed to hey Justin can I pick your brain for 45 minutes. Absolutely. So yeah. that would be my advice it, like anybody who wants to like sit down with someone who has any sort of reputability.
1: Yeah. That helps a lot. Or if you have a blog as opposed to saying how do I break into the food writing business. <laughs> Well, specifically what? Like, yep. you're already in the food writing business if you have a blog. So totally. what's your goal? How do I become the eater editor? Like, I don't know. Those are two different questions. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Just
0: making it known, like, what, what, what is, what is it that you want? Because right. I feel like a lot of people come from the perspective of, well, if I tell them exactly what it is that I want, then maybe something bad will happen or they won't... It goes the opposite way. Like if you just put lay it all out and say, here, this is what I want. That saves me time. Like yeah. as the person who you're trying to pick their brain, that saves me time. Yes. I don't know. That's just like, <laughs> I don't know, a little tidbit. Is there a book that's been particularly impactful for you in your career or that you're most likely to recommend to people? It doesn't have to be.
1: Yes, actually. So I went two years, um, pretty much struggling to find work. Like I had just, left Seattle Magazine. And I thought, you know what? Something's going to come along. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had just started Chef at X, but that wasn't something that was going to pay all my bills. So I needed something else on the side, but it was two years before really <laughs> I got a full paycheck Wowza. and I was really struggling. Like what is wrong with me? I've never not been able to get work. Like, what is happening? And it got to the point where I'm like, am I going to have to move in with my mom and dad? Mm -hmm. I have never struggled financially so much as I did uh, in like 2015, 2016. Wow. And then I found this book and I recommend it to anyone who's just feels like they can't attract positive things in their life, especially jobs and Uh career. Um, And it was written by a 40 something year old and it's called you are a badass yeah and it was on like the New York Times bestselling I'm sure there's there's a lot of people who just need a pep talk and the whole book was about here's a woman who's in her 40s she's driving a beat-up car she was literally describing my life you know (laughs) she was a writer she couldn't find work and finally I mean the whole you know the whole point of this book was just that you know what you think becomes things so if you get really down on yourself, right? It's like the law of attraction. If you're sitting there and like, "Oh my god, I'm never going to find a job. My life sucks, blah blah blah," then that is just the self-perpetuating thing in your life that is going to cause you to be poor and never find a job. So it was just like how she changed her way of thinking, and it was so simple. And I read that book and literally, I mean, a few months later, things kind of changed for me just because I started Thinking differently about stuff like everything that like changed my life just you know Realizing that your thoughts are powerful
0: And it goes because like you said it goes the other way like you have this negative self-talk with yourself. Yeah, and it flips everything around and I think what? what you so much of your background is you were willing to hustle your face off for the things that you want or like these random ideas that come into your head and so I think that's important to factor into the equation because a lot of people will hear uh I mean there's no shortage of people who believe in the law of attraction but they just kind of want to sit at home and say that I'm a great food writer I'm that's their mantra they want to say it over and over again without doing anything to kind of like move that needle yeah (laughs) you know like Sitting at home and saying that you're a great food writer and going and having the confidence at a networking event to say that I'm a great food writer are two very different things. And I think that that's just a very important kind of like pin in that to, to make sure that people don't think that just because you think positively will lead to, because po- right. it goes, it goes hand in hand. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, no, I totally. get frustrated when I hear the other, th- the other way <laughs> where it's like, I'm just going to think that I'm right. great at it's this. It's like,
1: just start doing something, whatever you can do now to move yourself forward, just start doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if it's for free Yeah What are you reading now these days? Nothing Nothing I really
1: (laughs) When I said I'm illiterate I basically No, I just don't I find myself reading online blogs and stuff Mm -hmm. But like actually sitting down opening a book and Mm -hmm. reading it It's been a while Like rarely do I open up a book and like I am just voracious about it Sure, You know, it's been a while so it's hard. F- I will usually fall asleep if I start reading a book or, I don't know. I'm one of those people that's like, I don't have time to start reading a book. I would rather watch a movie or Netflix. Or I was going to say, is there anything on Netflix oh or a podcast gosh. or
0: anything that you're... Going- I
1: definitely need some, like, recommendations yeah. for podcasts.
0: Podcasts. I
1: feel like I've watched everything on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I'm very, like, very much like a visual person. Yeah. Like, I like watching mm-hmm. gripping shows. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. I did recently watch that documentary on the Fire Festival. Dude,
0: on Netflix or Hulu? Cause Both. I did really? not, I did
1: not like the one on Hulu at all.
0: Somebody said the Hulu one was better. That's
1: what I was told. And I'm just Weird. like, this is shit. Yeah. No, the one on Netflix, like, you actually see them trying to build this festival, which ultimately just never mm-hmm. takes off. But, um... Yeah. And they interview all the people who worked for whatever that. Yeah. Yeah. Was. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Billy. Yeah. Mike Billy. Arnold. What's his face?
0: Yeah. That's so funny. I mean, talk about like the fear of hosting an event that we were talking about earlier. I know. <laughs> like the manifestation of the nightmare. <laughs> yes. Is that. Yep. Is that. It absolutely that. is man like people show up and the tables don't have tablecloths on them or like the wine
1: oh my gosh so every time there's an ono dinner we are usually setting up right until the last minute and I always tell us I'm like you know someone's gonna show up 45 minutes early with every single time and it's like what are you doing almost an hour early we haven't even like we haven't even put the tablecloths on. Totally. So go find the nearest bar and please just hang out there for like yep. an hour. And five minutes. An yes. hour and five minutes. <laughs> <Yes>. Do not <laughs> come be that a little person. bit late. Don't show up early for a party. Certainly yeah. not forty five minutes.
0: Totally. What I'm hearing though is that every, everybody listening to this needs to either tweet you or find you on Instagram and recommend podcasts. Because yeah, I don't be think great. I'm a I don't listen to other foodie podcasts. I don't listen to News or NPR I listen to like Performance entrepreneurship I have this weird doctor that I listen to His podcast because he's interested in like Longevity and uh, health span Peter Attia. okay It's a really interesting he's like gets super nerdy with people About yeah. cholesterol levels and uh, taking metformin and like all these weird he goes down so many weird rabbit holes I like that kind of stuff. I, I would never recommend. I don't know if it's something that would interest you but, I'm really
1: into like true crime. Got it. I like that kind of stuff But I yeah, also yeah, like yeah. things that make me think and make me laugh. So got I'm, it. I'm all over the place. Got it. Okay,
0: that's good to know Yeah, everybody has to give Julian recommendations. <laughs> it's a Saturday morning or your first day off after a work week doesn't have to be Saturday. You're kind of standing in front of your kitchen. What is your go-to breakfast I for yourself? I al-
1: almost always have avocado toast. I know that makes me sound like a millennial, yeah. but I love bread in the morning, like toast or like an English muffin. But yeah, I can tell, this is so weird, but if I go a long period of time without eating like avocados or walnuts, like I can tell the difference in my skin. Wowza. Because those foods are so good for my skin. Totally. But I can tell if I don't have those fats in my diet. So I'm almost, I go through phases. I'll go through like a cereal phase, like a smoothie phase. And right now I'm into an avocado toast phase, which eventually will probably die down.
0: How do you season your avocado?
1: I have like this kimchi spread that I get at the Madison co-op. Cool. I love it. And then if I don't, and then I'll put like the avocado on top of that and then it with a little bit of that aardvark hot sauce. Yep. Yep. And hemp seeds? Nice. Or I will use chow cheese, which is like plant-based cheese. Yep, yep. I'll melt that and then I'll put the avocado on top of that. Tight. So it's always spicy.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had that at a what event was it the other day? It was last it was late last year. It was this plant-based cheese that melts. Wild. Totally wild. It
1: makes really good um, grilled cheese sandwiches. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's the move. <laughs> you have you somehow get a call right after this interview that you just won an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream oh. restaurant. And when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk with waiting to have dinner with you. What restaurant is it and oh, who is that person?
1: Man. I don't have like this... I do know I would love to do some sort of like Paris cafe, uh-huh, right? Like uh-huh. I just want to be in Paris. Talk
0: about vibes. I
1: want to be there. I don't even care what food they serve. Just I just want to be in an old school Paris cafe. Who is there that I'm talking to?
0: It can be living or dead.
1: Damn, I mean, definitely Anthony Bourdain. Got it. I always thought I would meet that guy. I always wanted him to do, like, five shots, and I would have these fantasies of, like, I'm going to, someday I'm going to drink with Anthony Bourdain on camera. He'll probably fucking hate me because I don't <laughs> eat, like, a lot of meat and animal stuff. But whatever. Yep, yep. <laughs> it's so sad that it can happen. Yeah, I know.
0: <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have, it. there's so much to be said there, but... Um yeah, good choices. Good choices. And I feel like that's totally like in his wheelhouse too. too. He would totally meet you there. <laughs> yes. He'd meet you halfway there. Um I mean that that pretty much rounds up my question. I I always like to ask if there's anything that you want to leave people with or anything that you want to pitch or say to anybody or
1: hmm, this is the hardest question of <laughs> them
0: all. I mean, this can be the next 30 minutes if you want.
1: I uh No, not really. I just really wish people would just find a way to do what they want to do. Right. I mean, one of the things I love about this industry is that people who work in this industry are typically just like hustlers and they're doing it because they love it. You talk to people who work at like big companies and it's like, well, it's a steady paycheck nine to five. I'm just like, I have nothing in common with that. So if there's, I just feel like, you know, life goes by pretty quickly. And having a job that you fucking despise going to every day. If there's a way that you can keep the job you despise but incorporate something that you love, maybe while you're at work, like I just think that's so important to at least have something work-wise, career-wise that is moving you along, even if it's even if you're not getting paid for it right
0: now. Have you had an? I mean, maybe it was with that first food editorial, but any tips on anybody who's like, well, I have this thing that I want to present to my boss, but I don't know if it's going to go over very well. Like, are there any tips on how to present that idea to Hmm. be like, this is going to, please let me do this kind of thing.
1: I think that's it. Yeah. It's like, here's this cool thing. Why wouldn't you want me to do this? Right. I mean, everybody wants to hear a good idea. Yep. Yep. So
0: I tell the story of how my first time that I wanted to put a camera in the kitchen at the last restaurant I was working at I had to uh, my my chef was like well whatever you uh capture in the kitchen is all my content you know that right and I was kind of like call it naivete call it like I really just wanted to do it I was like deal sounds great I don't care (laughs) and like thank goodness that nothing like Com- supremely blew it out of the water and i like became super famous from it because that would have been a really stupid decision But <laughs> like I don't know like all I wanted to do is film. That's all I wanted and to do They did Let you or they did not let they, you. Did. they did. Yeah, they did okay. and What and did it, you do with that footage? Uh, I published it. Was it it just was like, like a live webcam Well, no, it was like a camera just like this I okay. put it up on a little tripod and I, I called it dish of the day where I would go in and I would just basically like there's this dish in my head that I'm trying to put on the tasting menu. Here's how I made it, and here's what my thoughts are on it, and here's what Chef had to say when I fed it to him, and it was a great. It was yeah. a great little kind of tiny series, but
1: I mean, yeah, asking your boss if you can incorporate some new idea versus asking for a raise. Yep. I mean, they're basically <laughs> profiting off of your ideas without having to pay you extra. Totally. Oh, it's a no-brainer. Yeah,
0: frame it in that way. It's very interesting. <laughs> um. Ooh. Uh. Nope. Don't want to answer. Don't want to ask that. that <laughs> Who do you that, hate most? In yeah, industry? what's? <laughs> let's talk about the 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 hit list, the the red check mark list. Um, it's okay, than cool. It be. Thank you so much for being on the show. This thank has you. been great. I do a full outro for you. So um, yeah, that's all I have for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank what you. Thank fun. you. Thanks Um, for the great coffee. Totally. Anytime. And that will do it. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you have questions for Julene or want to get in touch with her, all of the links are down low in the down low. If you've got suggestions on other folks you'd like to see me sit down with here on the Emulsion Podcast, please leave them in a comment down below or tweet at me. I'm always eager to hear from you. Until next time, please roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave the emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following Long on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience are always available on justincana.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of, the, out of the way here. Excuse, excuse me. Pardon me.